0: Hello, and welcome back to In Short. I'm your host, Alicia, an audiobook producer and director. And over the last three months, I have shared a selection of excellent short stories that I've produced and directed for you. Following each, I've had the immense privilege of sitting down with the author. We've talked about writing, the spark of inspiration, and the process of recording and narrating their story. Today, we have reached the penultimate episode of this miniseries, and next time I'll be sharing my own short story that I have written over the duration of this podcast and has been inspired by all the wonderful people I've talked with. So, for our penultimate episode, I'm so pleased to present a short story by M.G. Lockhart. M.G. Lockhart is the alter ego of a neuroscientist at Columbia University who spends his spare time trying to stay well-rounded by painting, making music, and writing short stories about his other alter egos. When publishing as a scientist, his research has been featured in multiple journals, focusing primarily on clinical studies of neurological disorders, but also, like his stories, occasionally venturing into more philosophical questions. When it comes to fiction writing, he has a particular penchant for a short story and tends to focus on finding the gentle absurdity of normality and generally avoiding writing about me sections. So please, sit back and enjoy this short story from M.G. Lockhart's Blanket Fort in New York City.
1: Detective Parmenter's Guide to Detectiving by M.G. Lockhart He was very busy Man, was he busy The sort of busy that was preoccupied by letting people know that he was busy Only the freshly polished doorknobs in his apartment gave the game away In fact, mused Saul, the shinier the brass in one's apartment, the less busy they must be This thought was hastily scribbled into a cheap notebook under the heading Detective Parmenter's Guide to Detective-ing. This chap was not busy. Saul smirked to himself at his own genius, then a glance back at the page's title undid that facial expression. Nevertheless, Saul detective-ed the crap out of the scene, he thought. Hey, Parmenter! interrupted Saul's detectiving assistant. Come check this out. Casting through the room, Saul's eye caught what must have been a fine accompaniment to the recent cadaver's daily life, while they were around to appreciate it. The city view out the window was painterly, even in the dull weather of a November Tuesday. Then the same eye caught his assistant, Jeffrey, stationary, facing the wall in the inane manner of a cat, In much the way that the city out the window crept into amateurish stories as a character in its own right – scoff – Geoffrey really captured what it meant to be simply part of the scenery of any story he was in. Pausing briefly, striving for somewhere, he hoped, between nonchalance and gravitas, Saul spun toward the bedroom of the condo and deftly sidestepped the little flags and chalk markings between them. The dance of the crime scene – was chapter two of his magnum opus inside the notebook. Geoffrey was a man of few words, and his exclamation had invaded Saul's preoccupation. Saw this painting. Thought it might be useful for you to see, boss. Ah. Geoffrey's cat-like tendencies ended prior to subtlety. This was not a clue, per se. No, Saul had simply, very unwisely he now thought, let his guard down after a particularly odd case and over a previously very full case of wine, introduced Geoffrey some three weeks ago to his habit of finding muses in the dead. He shouldn't beat himself up, of course. He longed to exhibit his work. It represented a solid two decades of his life, but he always let the delicacy of his subject matter talk him out of it. Not to say anything of the question of consent, nor dignity. Would he need to get the estate's permissions to exhibit portraits of recent murder victims? Not that he painted them grotesquely, mind. No. He painted them with vivacity in full flow of life. He found this study of their face a compelling aid to his detective work in order to deliberate on their personality and their putative daily life in a sort of meditative fashion. A person's choices were etched onto their face, Saul thought with full earnest and zero abash. The end of chapter two could have been how to deftly sidestep noticing a cliché if he weren't so talented at it. Just thought... Given the state of the poor lad's face, this might be of some use, boss. A lesser detectiving partner would have let that statement hide under the guise of a question. Saul liked that about Geoffrey. It was a poor, and oddly common, quality of a person to still mince words in the presence of death, in his opinion. In the hands of another narrator, perhaps the fact Detective Saul Parminter didn't know the difference between decorum and decor until he found himself comfortably in his twenties would have been more pertinent. Wonderful. Thank you, Geoffrey. Saul dropped the words out the side of his mouth while the other side of his brain sped on. But in reality, his following, that's of most use, good spot, was somewhat genuine. Saul always had a canvas on the go. He worked with unprimed material, which he hand-stretched between investigations with an oddly restless vigour. Friday evenings in his dank garden apartment, real to speak for being adjacent to the theory of a garden and even more adjacent to the practical application of not a garden, typically involved canvas prep. Tonight, though, Saul's hands were in full flow exploring the features of the recently deceased's face in oil, while Saul's mind was exploring the recently deceased's condo, the two unaware of each other. This wasn't all that uncommon, of course. As he'd described to Geoffrey, with every new case, Saul let the canvas slowly morph towards the victim, in some sort of exploration. And recently, he'd stopped fighting the instinct, actively pushing the paint to a likeness he hadn't originally been hunting. But the paint pushing was absent minded tonight, supplementary to the process. Saul was mentally back in the condo's bedroom, summoned by Geoffrey. He turned back the way he came to join Geoffrey's point of view in his mind, and his gaze arrested on the wall. By the door he saw the picture in his mind's eye once again, greyscale. The vivacity and youthfulness of the man now draped and discarded some three feet the other side of the wall somehow slowed his step. It was as if his own mind were clockwork, synapses left vacant while his feet were stationary. "'Brain like train station in middle of night,' scribbled his hand. Jump-starting the rest of him. Sometimes, only way to let new thought in is to chivy along the last one out the station. This was underlined, despite the imaginary train station's simultaneous role as being both too busy and too empty, much like its author's mind that Tuesday. It was only now, three days after, as the original painting crept into his own rendition, that Saul really felt his stasis breaking from that painting. It was, make no mistake halting. Putting his metaphorical detective's coat back on, he waded back out of the painting, returning to the memory of the room. At this point, Geoffrey had moved on to the ensuite, grunting as he tried to push some thoughts through faster than his hardware allowed. He'd poked his face out, caught some eyes and flicked the top of his head back the way it had come. Unlike Saul, nonverbal communication appealed to him. Saul had let the others take that one, and instead had laid hands on the opportunity to peek behind the painting. Paint streaked across the cheekbone, jarringly brought to a halt under the canvas eye as Saul swallowed a dose of swearing, inhaling the words out of habit. The lightness was still there, but it now sultrily peered from behind Saul's last thought, rendered incarnate in thick oil. Letting the chewed-up remnants of his swearing spill back out with an exhalation, Saul leant back, his own eyes slowly refocusing on the canvas. The Terp's soaked rag for cleaning was uninterrupted to his left. Saul was filling the kettle before the last of his mind returned to the present, bringing with it a new aphorism for his notebook as the victim lay tainted both on canvas and in his mind, not to mention the coroner's table. A crime scene is a canvas, Clues are not only in the paint left behind, but also in its gaps. Evidence of absence is not absence of evidence. Reaching for the turp's rag, Saul paused in apprehension of whether he'd be able to rescue the painting. He had a bad habit of painting wet on wet, and risked wiping away nearly everything the rag even thought about touching. Perhaps this was a goner. He could visit a different pluripotent beginning of a canvas instead. Failing to discard the rag, saw half-skip stripping turps en route to the adjacent bedroom. Realtor. If a mattress physically fits, it's a bedroom. Exit left. Only to discover he had no spares in progress. The injured canvas in the main room was all there was. The inspector had held up the first three fingers of his right hand and struggled over the cacophony. Three Coogan sails, please, and a house red. Thanks, love. Doing his best competitive trace slalom, he'd wended his way back to the quieter alcove behind the bar where Saul, Geoffrey and a sergeant made up the finish line. Saul hadn't been quite in his element, he never let a good time get in the way of his neuroses, but he'd been keen to trade scene notes with the inspector, as was their tradition the first night of a new case. The sergeant had barely spoken, he was green but promising, in the inspector's opinion, but Saul thought he was probably more likely there to act as the inspector's own Jeffrey, not willing to be outdone. He needn't have. So, accompanied the inspector's collapse into his seat, drinks dutifully distributed. What a scene. Did you see the broken wine glass? Under the table, to the right of whatever that stringed instrument was? Quite. Saul sipped before repeating. Quite. Although it was under the table on the left, and... Ooh, touche, contributed Geoffrey, forcing an... Avant-garde, from Saul, who had managed to convince Geoffrey it was the correct fencing term in riposte-touché, just to help him cope with having to hear Geoffrey's misuse of the word all too regularly. Keeping his gaze on the inspector, Saul continued, Do you consider the X glass of material interest? Well, among the rest of them, some of those neck wounds looked somewhat like a combination of the sharp slice-work of broken glass plus puncture wounds that are a likely match of that splintered stem's diameter. Indeed, indeed. However... Let me play devil's advocate for a moment. The setting had crept in, rather undoing his mirth at Geoffrey's expense. And consider that the glass was some way from the body. If it were used in such a manner, either it, or the body, must have been moved a considerable distance after the fact, yet not removed from the scene. I think it more likely the glass was an accident that occurred beforehand, or perhaps during the prologue of our fight. Leaning forward to grasp his pint, Geoffrey's elbow emitted quite the click as the joint settled. Wow, did you hear that? Saul did, but saw no reason to birth the moment into larger discussions. My initial thoughts, continued Saul, are based on a couple of options. First, the extent of the wounds points to some of our frequent flyers, unfortunately the ones with rather niche interests. The inspector knew these suspects all too well. They were unfairly likely to get away with it, given their background. They belonged to a corner of the police database that represented want to speak to, but really don't want to speak to. The wanted for questioning, questioning whether we want to cohort. Second, Saul continued, the neighbourhood would fit very nicely at the heart of my continued suspects Oh, not those old women again, Parmenter. We've questioned them at your insistence umpteen times and they're absolutely innocent, just sweet old ladies at the wrong place at the wrong time once or twice. Yes, them, soul seethed. The poisonous barrels. You should get out more, Parmenter. Alas, I'm a homing pigeon, built to see the world but designed to head straight home. Terps shone on the hardwood, doing a grand job of guiding Saul back to the canvas, like carefully laid crumbs, despite his not noticing them. The rag now comfortably left in his bedroom for the night, the victim's blocky new eyeliner remained. Saul didn't seem to clock it. The background was sparse. Suspiciously so. The surrounding environment is as important as the clue itself, read a line from page seven in his own guide. Nodding in agreement, Saul picked up a clean brush, a filbert, and began to explore the background. A vase of, now, dried flowers had been undeniably involved in the room. On the windowsill, inside, it had commandeered the view, not that that was a particularly impressive feat given its size. Pulling the brush in an elegant curve, Saul began placing it behind the foreground on the canvas, paying close attention to his memory of its structure. He recognised it as a ginger jar, despite its anachronism in the context of the rest of the apartment. Screw that, it's anachronism in the city, period. It's not like they're typically used for their original purpose anymore. You're more likely to find your aunt ginger in there than the spice, with their urn-like homology. Geoffrey had nearly knocked the thing off the ledge. Would have been a big accident. Saul had quipped at the time, before he joined Geoffrey in being conclusively ignored by all within earshot. The cops were dusting the doorjamb for prints, so Saul eavesdropped their mutterings about the former tenant's former life. The deceased had been a businessman. Saul was keen to be objective and not let a person's prior life taint his investigation. In fact, he often took the opportunity to expound to anyone who was listening how great he was at objectifying people. But businessmen was a bit of a stretch for Saul's worldview. In his mind, what do businessmen actually contribute or create? From their birth to their... In this case premature, death, the only thing that's changed is who has some money. They're removal men, hired by investors to shift their cash from A to B and back again, and perhaps skim a little off the top. It would appear the skimming had been fruitful. The cops had recently completed their manual scan of the apartment to make a list of valuables, and in doing so had found themselves with quite the weighty tome. Surprisingly, there was no evidence of anything missing. I and mean, even if something had been, why leave the rest of the trove? Saul found he'd introduced not just the ginger jar to the background, but various valuable ornaments, doing their best to highlight his difficulty with capturing a shiny metal surface in oil paint. His routine bottle of Curacao, a feature in all his paintings. He wasn't sure they quite worked, but he'd learnt it was a good thing to include, something to do with light and dark. And curiously, a small facsimile of the original portrait, in the depths of his own portrait in progress. What a strange contribution from his absent mind, thought Saul's, slightly less absent mind, prompting time for a break. Counterintuitively, read the first line of a recent addition to Parmenter's Guide, when looking for information buried deep in the crime scene, it is oft best to search elsewhere. This thought was more cryptic than it needed to be, boiling down to have a change of scene, but it wasn't a bad one, and so Saul took the advice and headed out to replenish supplies. The lack of blank canvases had begun to burrow in unease the stress of knowing there was no restarting. Shuffling derisively past the artist's grade, pre-stretched box canvases in front, Saul made haste to the separate leaves of unprimed material in the fluorescent-bathed backroom that he'd be riffling through for some time. Offcuts of the pricier materials were his rare treasure, but they did dictate the size and the composition. The detective's budget alternative afforded fewer restrictions in their sale-like vast sheets, but that was never not an option, cheapening it even if it were nearly unilaterally a better choice. Saul found his mind casting back over his recent portfolio, their shapes and sizes, some a result of materials, others a consequence of conscious design. But despite his anxiety over supplies at this moment, not one had been subjected to a do-over. Each painting, each subject, flowed with ease from initial outlines, contained in their varied borders, to complete recognisable clients. Canvas rolls having been slid very neatly beneath his unmade bed, Saul was once again face to -to soon-to-be-face with the decedent's portrait. Features had been slathered on and carved out with his palette knife. The subject's life lent itself to the exorbitance of thick slabs of oil. One slice of bare, raw canvas was visible, however, cascading from near his temple, sliding past his eye, coming to rest just above the cheekbone, near the ginger jar. A distinct scar. Only, the body hadn't exactly been left in a condition to find this likeness. At first glance, it had been tricky to work out which side of the head would have been home to the face, let alone shown any evidence of more subtle features. Saul flicked his eyes to his replica of the portrait from the crime scene hiding in the background. No scar. Of course, perhaps he just hadn't incorporated it, given the size of the reproduction here. But no, he prided himself on his observation. Act yourself as an observatory, and you shall observe a story. I know, I can only apologise. And there had surely been no such mark there. but He was sure of its existence. Ah, the neighbour, Saul audibly pinned his excuse on the interview. It must have arisen there. Far too soon after his lunch, Saul had found himself conducting a light interrogation on the departed's erstwhile neighbour from directly across the hall, an apartment facing the interior mechanical shafts of the building, housing an apparently sweet old man who had been, perhaps, not that shocked at the intrusion. Had you been in your apartment between the hours of 1900 two nights ago and 0200 the following morning, sir? Detective, I'm 82. Where would you have me be? Saul let the moment breathe while he contemplated if it had been rhetorical. Did you know him well? As reasonably as you might expect a neighbour twice his age, I think, shrugged the reply. And his comings and goings? What about visitors? Frankly... I knew too much of that. Saul's eyebrow accelerated the neighbour's words. But not because it was untoward, to my knowledge. Oh, no. I just have liked my peace and quiet. Honestly, I think his most regular was a piano tuner. Nice woman. But that was certainly no relaxed afternoon for me, hell no. Notes twanging and edging towards some promise of a frequency, each getting there somehow slower than the last. But it was his hobby, and hey bud, I like a man with a unique hobby, and I don't get much more unique than building pianos from scrap. He'd spent a lot of time on that. Before dying. Worked so long on it. What? Dying? Saul had zoned out a little. No, the piano. Well, I guess. None of us spends longer on anything else, I suppose. The French press holding Saul's paint-laden water crashed over the floor, breaking his trance. Seems he had shifted his weight mid-memory, tipping the side table. Ah well, there didn't seem to be much worth pursuing there anyway. At least he didn't think a scar had come up after all, and the coffee pot wasn't the end of the world. All of his possessions were Kintsugi fan fiction to some degree. He lived by the mantra, if it ain't fixed, don't break it. The outlet genuinely worked. Cheap tat that couldn't be rescued was soon thrown out, and only those that had proven their worth, through being both broken and rescued, survived. Those golden scars were beauty. The most interesting thoughts are more buoyant after midnight, came a thought after midnight. Always coming up when people to discuss them with wish to sleep resulting in a brand new section in Saul's guide, as the notebook pages threatened to run out. The lack of sounding board didn't actually bother Saul too much. His assistant, Geoffrey, was of course ideal as someone to bounce ideas off, being himself a blank canvas in Saul's opinion. But these moments of thought, embedded deep into the dark after others were in bed, were soothing. Briefly. It seemed he found melancholy in bliss, always fearing what could be lost as if his emotions wrapped, coming full circle, teaching him not to pursue too much happiness. He should have noticed the inherent rhythm in these emotions by now. That morning, Saul had slotted his completed portrait into the last shelf of the drying rack, before heading to the precinct to file away his final deductions for the case. Inflicted by his usual post-case restlessness, he finished adding his new thought to the notebook, before flicking back to the front of his detective guide. Slowly. At the bottom of the page, he added a new line to his tally, taking the moment to consider all those responsible who he'd helped rehome. The lines now totalled 24. Saul always pictured them behind these little bars he was collecting. Good job he'd just added a new extension. In the morning, the portrait would be dry enough to take over to his storage across the park, both the scuffs on previous canvases and the paint on various items of clothing would strongly disagree with this assessment. Stepping through the pedestrian entrance, en route, he fought the wind with the canvas, face first, before finding a rhythm, echoing the sway of the elms, catching opposition, brief release, rinse and repeat. What an insulting finale, thought Saul, the subject's second tussle to eventual resting place. Once, desperate for air in a dormant building, now, fighting it in a park he had likely never set foot in, held aloft by a distracted detective. Exit pursued by too much to bear, muttered Saul. Luckily, nobody was nearby at the time. Arriving at his section, the canvas was lent against the door, facing the brightness of the skylight while Saul unlocked the shelving unit before being slid into the darkness. With irritation, Saul noted he'd need to shell out for a whole new unit after the next painting, with each unit bearing five shelves and each shelf comprising five sections, with now only one left empty. Oh. Curious, explained Saul to his captive audience of unwilling painted participants. One for each case. I would have thought I was a more prolific detective than painter. A recollection of a statement from Geoffrey pulled him back into his final visit to the most recent scene. Can't wait to see your rendition, boss. He had been oblivious to the conversation surrounding him, unaware that his attention had been focused on the removal men taking down the portrait until Geoffrey's voice had pierced his trance. Clearly, Geoffrey had clocked his gaze. Judging by the few you shared, and assuming my powers of observation are up to snuff for this job, he really should assure his assistant more often. You really, you really define each victim. Yes. Yes, I do, thought Saul. Geoffrey had been trying to sound artsy, knowledgeable, but he was right nevertheless. Saul really captured their likenesses. He defined them in the brushstrokes. And yet, each had started from a canvas with understrokes already in place. Shapes that he hadn't altered. "'Detective Parmenter, if I could interrupt your reverie, what are your thoughts?' The inspector had failed to interrupt his reverie. "'Um, allow me... allow me to hold you in suspenders for a moment while we consider...' trailed off Saul, moving his attention back to the portrait on its way out the door. Whenever he painted one of the victims, he had, by good fortune, had a canvas on the go that lent itself to the deceased's image. And he hadn't had a spare underway.' Had he done in previous cases? The cold reality reached him fractionally before the cold-polished concrete of the storage facility floor. Surely... Surely not. Detective Saul Parmenter thought of himself as a man of science and couldn't bear entertaining such a novel, bizarre idea, somewhat missing one of the core tenets of actually being a scientist. He hadn't simply not had spares on the go during the cases... He'd never done a single portrait that didn't find its likeness in a victim. Here they all were, tallied up like the perpetrators had been in the front of his guide. Saul helped himself up off the floor, brushing off the idea along with the dust. He'd started each of these works days, sometimes weeks before the case, and he'd invariably been called into the cases very shortly after the victim had been discovered, often still warm, not more than a few hours after their demise. There was no way. But the thought troubled him back through the park. He tried shifting it with writing in the following days, but he found working on The Guide to Detectiving raised uncomfortable questions. He even briefly turned to drink but wasn't very good at it, favouring a late-bottled vintage port which didn't exactly lend itself to wanton excess. Above all, He daren't find refuge at the bottom of a tube of paint. As the days got shorter, so too did his belief diminish that it wasn't his doing. That instead, the victims were his. Undistracted by a dearth of new cases, his mind was free to entrench itself in the hypothesis. A train stuck in the station. At last, Saul flicked to the end of the notebook, writing again for the first time in weeks. Our culture is built on Stockholm Syndrome. Ask yourself, why do we have two words for prodding people in the right direction, suggest and recommend, yet no single word to denote reticence of those suggestions and recommendations? While most would be driven from this entry thanks to its shocking earnestness, eye roll, Sewell instead was pulled from it by a call from the front page. Resting his finger at the bottom, he took the moment to consider all those responsible who he'd helped rehome, trapped in his tally. Mid-February arrived, still no cases. Detective Saul Parmenter had just let himself back into his garden apartment and was in the process of setting up when the door buzzer interjected. The wrong button, they had been seeking the neighbour upstairs. Returning, Saul paused, taking in his scarred surroundings, his life of golden kintsugi before dipping the brush, a filbert, in the cerulean blue hue, and outlining a three-quarter profile.
0: Hey, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Um, shall I call you Martin?
1: Yeah, yeah, why not?
0: So for listeners, the reason why I sound a bit confused is uh, M.G. Lockhart is in fact a pseudonym. I don't typically call you Martin. Um, It's not a cunning ruse to hide your identity or anything like that. It's more to differentiate your fictional writing from your scientific publications, yeah? Exactly. Um, So thank you so much for sharing your story. I absolutely Mm. adore Detective Parmenter's Guide to (laughs) Detective-ing. It's got so much humour in it and... It works so well as a short story, and you seem to have such a brilliant grasp on short stories specifically. And so let's dig in there straight away. Why short stories? What's the appeal for you?
1: Wow. I mean, that was kind. I mean, well, I worry it sounds uh, pretty pretentious, but um, I actually kind of like them as an art form in their own right. Uh, Something independent of novels. I quite enjoy uh, construction of sort of a flash in the pan, not necessarily covering less time than longer form fiction, but just really boiled down. I reckon it's perhaps a bit like the difference between charcoals and oil paint.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, uh, sorry, so Very
0: correct. apt for... I was going to say
1: to borrow, borrow <laughs> a theme from Parminter. Personally, I love both oil paintings and charcoals, especially on sort of similarly large canvases. Uh, but they give me something different. And I think the charcoal perhaps feels more raw and primal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the same relationship I tend to ascribe to sort of flash fictional short stories versus novellas and novels. Beauty in both, but that's, that's the relationship. Yeah, that was that was definitely pretentious.
0: <laughs> I'm interested to know, like, how does short story writing kind of go hand in hand with your scientific writing? Do they inform each other, or are they completely separate from each other?
1: Hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess part of being a scientist is writing quite a lot of stuff. Weirdly, occasionally it's it's long form, like a like a dissertation, but more often it is a shorter publication. The long form. Tends to be more free to write personally, but in the shorter publications, at least in my area, uh, they end up with a lot of authors, and there becomes a hint of writing by committee. I'm not really (laughs) sure beauty and committee go together super easily. (laughs) Um, So short stories for me are sort of an opportunity to grab that short form writing back without the committee. Uh, Not not that I don't love my co-authors in science.
0: And and you don't have. I mean, you maybe you do have uh, aspirations to write the novel, but you're you're quite focused on specifically short stories, right?
1: Yeah, I'd say so. I think uh, that sort of goes hand in hand with the art creating as well. I'm always a fan of more monochrome. It doesn't have to be black and white, but as in like a single colour that's shaded throughout a painting, mm-hmm. like a charcoal drawing or graphite or paintings with limited palette. Um, so I sort of think they're kind of related.
0: I feel like you really dispel the, the horrible myth that scientists aren't creative because when you're talking about actually like charcoals and oils and all that sort of thing you're actually an artist as well which I find really interesting I'd love you to talk about um the way that science and creativity and art and writing kind of go hand in hand
1: um yeah I mean I guess I'm not here to to proselytize uh being a scientist but I guess the the common view is is really of a sort of bench scientist which is a fairly menial sort of concept whereas i think research scientist is more a creative position you kind of need to have that creative spark to be able to come up with the ideas and work out ways that you can test those ideas
0: and you're you're a neuroscientist so you also came at science from a very sort of philosophical direction right
1: (laughs) yeah um well a would be philosophical (laughs) direction um Yeah, it came from philosophy of mind, really, Mm -hmm. I guess. I was mostly, well. I started, my undergraduate was in artificial intelligence. And it was during studying that, that we had a single module in sort of neurocomputation. And I realized that the big questions about not artificial intelligence, natural intelligence, were were far more interesting to me. And then just sort of existentialism, consciousness. But these are the big questions that uh, I'd love to answer with neuroscience, but we're kind of not really there yet.
0: Does it feel like you're slightly retreating into the writing world in order to start trying to, you know, a- answer those questions or present <laughs> possible answers? Yeah, maybe.
1: Yeah, I guess you don't have to have a testable hypothesis to write a short story.
0: <laughs> mm. um, so that that brings me brilliantly onto um, what tells you that an idea is a short story instead of a novel or a film. For you, what is that differentiation?
1: Mm. Mm. Well, I'm certainly no expert uh, any of them, but I'm even less an expert in novels or films, uh, so I guess I'm not super well situated uh, to have an opinion on that one. But I guess the the novel versus short story at least boils down to the same concept with the charcoals and oil paints from before. And it's whether the sort of situation feels like it needs to be richly filled in, mm-hmm. um, or if the concept can exist as just the bones and still work. As for film, uh, maybe come back to me in five years when I've naively tried to write a screenplay. <laughs>
0: Everyone has to go through through that yeah. process right <laughs> everyone's got like a screenplay a novel or a half-started novel or something <laughs> like that um and I know you say you're not an expert in it and I think this goes to a conversation that's regularly had in the writing community is at what point are you a writer um I mean I know you haven't been writing since age five or anything like that um so so how do you kind of navigate that yourself mm-hmm. do you do you think that you're not a writer well, I think you're a writer I love love your writing
1: yeah I guess I would say I'm not a writer um not done it enough yet I guess it's kind of similar to the question of when you're a New Yorker <laughs> and I think uh, I think as a writer um I, I haven't uh, been spat on on the writing subway yet so <laughs> not officially a writer
0: or you haven't <laughs> cried on the subway yeah. I think it's one or two right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so how, how do you go about generating your ideas? Are there, are there any themes that typically thread through it? Any influences?
1: Hmm. Um, generating the ideas, I think, uh, is by discarding a lot of them, I guess. Um, <laughs> I do think the better ones might be accidental, uh, really. Or perhaps I just enjoy them more because I didn't work so hard to think them up.
0: Oh, <laughs> um,
1: So I'm happy to devote more time to turning them into something. But in general, I think they stem from finding something odd or a a concept amusing. And so it's the meaning or ending that pops into my head. And then slowly characters Mm -hmm. and the story are added around that. Yeah. Um, I say that, but actually in this case, um, I realized in some of the previous short stories, I'd been trying too hard to create a voice in quotation marks. Um, And so Parmenter actually came about because I thought I should have a go at just lampooning a cliche. I thought I'd have a stab at writing just an opening scene. Mm. It was going to be left as just that. But then um, a friend sort of encouraged me to keep going and see where it might go. And uh, well, here we are. As for themes, um, I guess, without doubt, the most common theme in in my limited cachet of short stories is a sort of um, existential apathy, I guess, (laughs) yeah. I quite like an ending being a bit like we've built to something grand, but then the apathy of the universe just sort of steamrolls on and nothing really changes or so something. Something that you'd expect to be an important moment sort of dissolves, becomes not much.
0: Yeah, yeah. it has that, yeah, absolutely a sense of grandeur. I mean, I've I've read a couple of your other short stories and you say in your like small collection, but let's talk like there's about five completed Maybe that you wouldn't share, but...
1: but yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple that I would say work in the same uh, collection as Parminter, So,
0: I mean, I, I've been working on the same short story for literally this entire podcast and the years leading up to it because I find them really difficult to, to write. And you <laughs> managed to, to bring them out. Um, but yeah, so themes of existential dread... <laughs> um and, and sort of that yeah again hand in hand with philosophy the mm. neuroscience the AI and yeah any any influences where do you sort of draw inspiration from? Mm.
1: Well this one's I think kind of a weird one interestingly uh, so that, that stab at writing an opening that turned mm. into Parmenter. I was originally just playing around with trying a style like Douglas Adams or Terry Pratchett. Mm. Um, Not not that I ended up going that way and not not that I think I'd be anywhere near capable of either of their voices anyway. Um, But I do think channeling both of them a bit when I was just getting started on that really helped me find a more natural voice in this one over Mm. some of my initial attempts at short stories. Um, But then, I mean, I guess that's just sort of like the style of humor for influences on thoughts and ideas, I guess sort of like the old classics, you can paint me as that cliched wannabe philosopher who's obsessed with Albert Camus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> love, love his writing. And then also very much so Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. Uh-huh. I think the writing style in that as well as the ideas sort of translate a little bit to what I want to try and do in these short stories, especially from a philosophical aspect. Um, as for short stories in particular, I, I, I really like E.M. Forsters, mm-hmm. much more old style. Um, But especially The Other Side of the Hedge, because I think think those are masterclasses of um, the short story as a separate art form in Mm. their own right, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to being just sort of a playground for ideas. Um, And then weirdly, I'm also a really big fan of autobiographies, as long as they're written by someone interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Caveat. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, I I recently enjoyed uh, Oliver Sacks's autobiography, Mm. um, and then especially... The most recent one was um, Barbarian Days, which is an autobiography by a surfer, William Finnegan, mm. um, which which was masterfully written. Um, I like how a well-written autobiography is sort of like a road trip story, mm. just that we're road tripping through their lives instead. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd like to capture that vibe in a short story one day, basically.
0: It's really interesting that you talk about um, how much you like autobiographies and that sort of real-life aspect, because having spent a fair bit of time with you, um, I see quite how much of everyday conversations end up in your mm. short stories and how they spark ideas. Um, how, how do you think... Like, Do you think if you sat down to write something entirely fictional you'd be able to get through to the end because I can like see people that we know in your short stories (laughs) or at least things they've said. No one is Jeffrey or (laughs) Parmenter. Uh,
1: yeah, I don't know. That's a tough question. I guess the answer is probably no, I couldn't, which is a dissatisfying answer for me (laughs) because I wish I could. (laughs) Maybe I should try that, practice that. Um, but no, my, um, well, I guess it's also a vessel for for things that I find amusing in day to day life. <laughs> so it's kind of yeah, it's it's sort of uh, two sides of the same coin there. But for the for the plans for these, I'm working on a on a sequel to this one now. In fact, um, it's basically um, a checklist of things I found amusing that I want to somehow <laughs> structure into the story. And it's long. Very. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I think it's really interesting how you take the influence of autobiography and the influence of humor like Terry Pratchett, and you kind of find these delightful little like jokes or bits of wordplay, and you find a way to bring them into your writing. And there were just like months of you saying, oh, that's a parliamentarism. Um, which I really liked. And so humor, I think is really interesting in this because absolutely you didn't write a Terry Pratchett book. You didn't write an autobiography. Like I said, you're certainly not in there, but things that you've said or things that friends have said have all ended up in there and they've created this really rich, robust world, um, which has just been such a delight to explore.
1: Ah, I'm glad.
0: Um, And so we've kind of started delving a bit into Detective Parmenter's Guide to Detective Ng. I love how he's the detective, but he's also a, you know, a hobbyist painter. Um, And how did you kind of settle on that idea and the style of it?
1: Mm. I guess the style came about after a lot of scratching my head about what point I wanted to make with it. Mm. Uh, As I said, it started off as just sort of a jokey attempt at an opening that I was never going to pursue. But... The first thing I wanted to do after that was going to turn into something more was make a sort of joke or lampoon of a sort of picture of Dorian Gray. Mm. So I wanted to use the painting like being a force uh, in the same way. But then I realized after a while that I was basically then writing a not as good version of picture of Dorian Gray <laughs> and trying to put myself in the ring mm. with a much better writer by doing so. <laughs> Um, so I realised that that was a pretty stupid direction to go, Um, and then it slowly just sort of morphed and naturally became what it is, based around uh, the little notes, and I realised that I was creating a character for Parminter through those notes, so really it was his sort of existence and his hobbies that formed the style of writing.
0: Oh, that's so interesting, so the idea that, especially as you said that most of them kind of come from a concept first, did Parminter come out before the concept really for this
1: uh for the ultimate concept yes so there were previous concepts that 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 predated Parmenter, uh but they i didn't like them as much or maybe parminter didn't like them as much (laughs) um uh, so Parmenter pre-existed where this ended up going um and actually that was kind of important because i already had his personality in mind when i was writing sort of the well the majority of it Mm. as a result and the Narrator in it, whilst it's not like sort of super clear that that's a separate entity. Um, I intended to sort of be Parmenter as well. It still has Parmenter's voice, mm. but it's a slightly more enlightened Parmenter. It's mm-hmm. a bit like yeah. a sort of Parmenter who has ceased to be and now sees the whole truth and is looking back at it. That's that's sort of the narrator in my mind.
0: It totally so works so. like that as well. Awesome. In my notes, I have something very similar written. Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, I also love the sort of the style of it. Has it has this very fun noir world with jokes. It kind of feels a bit like uh the show Duck Gently. Um yeah,
1: Douglas Adams.
0: Oh yeah, well there you go. Um and so the style is just so fun and it kind of feels like you really take this sort of well-known genre and it feels like you kind of subvert it with this very sort of apathetic depressing ending if you talk me through how you got there from this very humorous character and this very sort of well-known style and genre
1: yeah I'm glad that sounds like it sort of worked because (laughs) I was actually worried with this short story that I do set it up like a traditional murder mystery-esque exactly like you say sort of noir thriller and then I worry that by not actually giving a solution to that, <laughs> I've made a lot of people very disappointed or think it's a bit rubbish. <laughs> because, well, as a result, I try to make sure that it's very clear by two-thirds of the way through mm. when he's already finished his investigation that that's not going to be the direction it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully it is, yes, a little bit of a sort of 180 at that time point. But I'm, I was hoping it would be sort of smooth enough that using that style and then taking a different direction, works nicely with that sort of existential apathy mm. point as well. Sort of defusing the murder mystery, like removing the mystery, instead placing in this apathy.
0: This is something I've only just thought about, so it might be coming out a bit uh, ragged. But the, it kind of feels a bit like the story becomes a, a chicken or the egg question. Um by the end of it, Parminter's kind of come to this amazing and horrifying realization that possibly his painting of the suspect is what causes the murder. But then we don't really know at the end. You leave it quite ambiguous. And so yeah, like the idea of what come what came first. Was it Parminter? Is he causing it? Is he just reacting to it? And then his decision to pick up the brush at mm-hmm. the end. Which I think is just delightfully dark, um, and I think lands (laughs) so beautifully in audio.
1: Oh, good.
0: Talking about audio, let's get into the, uh, let's just frame the idea of audiobooks a bit. Uh, Are you a listener of audiobooks? Why, why not?
1: (laughs) Typically, uh, I hadn't been really, other than when travelling, which I think they're absolutely ideal when travelling. I know a lot of people listen to them, full stop. (laughs) 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 Um, No. I know a lot of people listen to them and podcasts when doing other things, mm-hmm. uh, especially things like around the house tasks, but I am completely incapable of not focusing solely on the audio once I get into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll just be stood in the middle of the room, uh, like Jeffrey.
0: Facing stationary. the wall. <laughs>
1: yep. Stationary in the inane manner of a cat listening. <laughs> um, so, so they completely uh, put me out of service listening. Um, but anyway, I would, I would like to um, listen a little bit more. I enjoyed this. Uh, my other qualm with it, so has guess I've realized I'm perhaps too much of a control freak. Mm. Um, when reading, uh, I sort of dictate the speed of reading mm-hmm. uh, and the information entering into my brain. And I think I do fluctuate massively depending on how the content is making me feel at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the very extreme end of that, I do also go back and reread parts that were especially impactful. Like, three times in a row just mm. making them settle in which is a weird thing to do anyway i know but um i think it's even weirder slash harder to do with an audiobook
0: yeah like rewinding yeah. and yeah it becomes... i mean it's
1: not it's not cassette anymore it's,
0: it's not... <laughs> <laughs> you make it sound like you're old enough to really have been in those days
1: i certainly own a few audiobooks on cassette tape
0: what sort of audiobooks did you listen to
1: oh, children's books oh. oh and terry pratchett actually yeah I used to fall asleep listening to Terry Pratchett as read by Tony Robinson
0: oh it's my fantastic. gosh yes
1: yeah difficult thing to fall asleep to so because it's entertaining probably, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Okay, cool. So let's um, get into how it was recording your story. I know that you were a little bit sceptical about the whole performance aspect of it, but also you were a bit wary of how the wordplay or jokes might translate to audio. Um, So let's talk a bit about the technical and then we can get into the uh, sort of artistic uh, interpretation of it. How did you feel in the recording closet?
1: Quite warm. (laughs) Uh, I, I guess in hindsight, I enjoyed it. Type 2 fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, fun that you don't realize was fun at the time, but in hindsight, definitely <laughs> was. Um, but no, I, I, I think it was um, its quite an enjoyable experience. It was interesting because as I was writing the story, I definitely do read it out loud in my head. I guess that's a bit mm. of a oxymoron. It's not out loud in my head. There's you do. People. There's an inside... In, in, inside Voices, people. Um, <laughs> there's an inside your head voice Mm. and there's actually reading out loud in quotation marks in your own head. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do that when I'm writing it and as a result I felt like I definitely knew how every single phrase would be read out Mm -hmm. and then realized that actually when it comes to doing that into a microphone that changes a fair bit. If you're reading inside your own head you don't need to pause to take breaths. Mm. So the rhythm is a different thing even though you feel like you're reading it as you would whilst performing
0: that's really interesting no one's ever said that um i thought that you got the narrative voice and Parmenter's voice on page really really sort of clear that wonderful symmetry between them just one more enlightened and i loved the similarities how it played out in your actual voice because one of the things that narrators like to do or is best to do when they're sort of recording is it's a slightly more performed version of their own voice and um, the sort of the main narrative voice and so what we had is we had two different uh, levels of your voice um, and so it became very meta in that you had the narrator's voice then you had the narrative voice and then you had palmitter's voice which kind of felt like a step up in each performance.
1: Nice yeah I mean I guess you also had have- Parmenter's very irritating voice on top of that. Oh yeah. So Parmenter's His... <laughs> guide writing.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it kind of feels like with that sort of symmetry between all the voices, uh, maybe the narrative voice was actually a type of Parmenter writing their account mm-hmm. of the story. Yeah. So we get very meta.
1: Parmenter's all the way down.
0: <laughs> um So voicing the characters, that Parmenter was pretty natural for you. Let's talk about Jeffrey. Let's talk about the inspector. Um, How how was it kind of trying to get those voices out?
1: Yeah, I like how they ended up sounding. Mm -hmm. One of the things I did in this story was I haven't really given any defining features of where it might be, what time Mm. period, anything like that. Um, So I tried to make it so that it was completely free of that so anyone could... Anyone reading it or listening to it could sort of picture their own city or wherever they wanted to. Mm. But that said, there's quite a few word choices and layouts Mm. of things um, that makes it North American. Um, So in my head, I already know what these characters sound like with American accents, (laughs) not my British accent. So that was kind of weird.
0: Were you tempted to do an American accent and try and put it all the way through?
1: (laughs) Well, yes. Yes.
0: Tempted, but not convinced that you would be able to follow through.
1: I reckon I'd have been able to maintain it throughout the entire thing, but it would have been a very steady level of embarrassing.
0: <laughs> um, but I think you did really, really well with, with voices. Getting some really convincing characters that weren't difficult stereotypes, which I know you desperately wanted to avoid.
1: Yeah, I do, Yeah, I guess the inspector is the one who's most dangerously treading close to a sort of stereotype. But I think that works for for his very brief appearances in this story.
0: And I think also because I I talk a lot on the podcast about how I always desperately want to avoid stereotypes mm. myself. Um, weirdly, with this particular story, because it's such a genre, it's such a well-known sort of combination of tropes that are then subverted, it kind of feels like if we had lent more into stereotypes it wouldn't have been terribly distracting. Mm.
1: Yes, that's true. And I guess also the inspector, when he's at his most close to stereotype, Mm. that's actually the last bit we experience in the story before it becomes fully subverted and then it's just Parmenter in his own head. Mm. And we've we've had a change of genre at that moment. So I guess it sort of makes sense that we really dial up that stereotype of the genre that we're about to subvert Mm. the moment before it gets taken away like that. Yeah. So I guess that works really quite nicely.
0: It's really interesting that we say it's a subversion of the genre and it definitely is but it kind of also becomes a um, slightly speculative in the fact that he's magically the murderer or might be magically the murderer. Um, so it's definitely a sort of a play on very well-known tropes within noir and, and that moment of realisation where we had to like really slow it down at the end so we really made sure that the listener was definitely tracking each thought process. I think that worked really really well and for me it like obviously i'd read it beforehand so i i I knew what the impact was but then it really landed perfectly for me when it came to audio and i think that's just it speaks very clearly to the difference between someone who takes things in better audibly or takes things better visually Hmm. and there are also some elements um of the story that just didn't necessarily work in an audio format. Um, for example, like the tally that you talk about, and the tally of his rehomed people who he thought were responsible, that's actually on the page. It's a really delightful reading experience. And, and then also the idea of the old man losing his train of thought um, on the word piano, and the characters kind of get smaller. And so I know that you were concerned that Those sort of charms of the story weren't going to, just weren't going to translate as well.
1: Yeah, but you totally made that work, I think. Um, There's, uh, it doesn't feel like there's anything missing. And I don't think those jokes are missing. They are sort of captured Mm. in the way you had me perform it. Uh, I guess I did greatly enjoy writing it, um, going full James Joyce style punctuation (laughs) thrown in everywhere. Um, and I, I enjoyed trying to make some of the jokes in the actual placement of the punctuation, some semicolons and parentheses and things like that, which obviously can't be read out unless dictating a telegram. <laughs> um, but hopefully I think some of that humor, I mean, it's just a different sort of form. I needed to write that in the punctuation because it wasn't being performed. Mm. Um, so I guess my worry about them going missing in the audio performance was almost reverse. Mm. Um, I was actually putting them in because it wasn't an audio performance. So actually turning it into an audio performance is okay not to have them.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting in that the idea that the punctuation is tone of voice mm. as such. It's like our teachers when we were younger were telling us all the time that without correct punctuation, people <laughs> might not get the exact meaning. Yeah. Almost like they were right.
1: <laughs> yeah. The um, the other one is that tally, like you mentioned. Mm. We we put in a new line saying mm. now they numbered twenty four. I think it was something yeah. like that, um, and uh, that works for the audio, for sure. But I try to hide that a little bit more in the original text. Mm. You had to actually count the tally to know yeah. that it's twenty four. So when I have him get to the uh, the storage facility and he's mm. counting out how many canvases he's painted mentioning it's five times five Mm -hmm. and there's one left then there's that little thing I've basically laid those numbers in but they're not being given to you at face value Mm. so turning the tally into a face value number sort of takes that away but I guess when you're listening to audio there's also sort of almost less of a memory because you're Mm. along for the ride so I guess it's actually probably necessary to have that 24 stated to the listener rather than having them try and count up a tally (laughs)
0: yeah i mean we did play with the idea of uh audibly putting in the lines being drawn (laughs) but then we thought that might have been a bit tedious um so you've listened to it a couple of times now and so how is that experience of listening through to it
1: you know um i guess the first response to that just because it's what everyone else says uh i want to realize that i must be a bit of a narcissist (laughs) because i quite enjoyed it (laughs) Um, as a piece I think it was really nice it brought it to life in a way that it wasn't on the page and that's really fun to hear something that I've created that is flat Mm. become three-dimensional it was interesting the usage of music yeah because one of the other things I enjoyed doing in short stories like I said earlier it doesn't necessarily have to cover less time Mm-hmm. Than a full-length novel, it just has to be compressed down, boiled down. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I like is actually jumping about in time, and that is quite apparent on the page because you've got section breaks. Yeah. Didn't really. That doesn't really work in audio. Um, so having so I think using the music was a really nice way to mm. emphasise the fact that right, take a moment. Well, now we start again at a different time.
0: What I also really loved about the music was the choice for two different tracks, and mm. um, this is the only one that we've done in the last season that has had two types of music in it. Uh, why did you decide that?
1: Um, I guess that it was literally just the same concept as the subversion of the genre. Um, we open with the the vibe that the story has or implies that it's going to be at the beginning. It's a sort of lighthearted, goofy detective story mm. that's going to be a bit of fun. Um it's got that ridiculous sort of theme music, which is very <laughs> bouncy and a bit twangy and out of tune here and there. Um, but then that doesn't really feel right for, well, one, it's a lot of stuff going on for a section break. Yeah. Um, uh, but two, it doesn't really feel right for the end, I don't think. Mm. Um, it would be quite jarring to have that that ending of when he picks up the paintbrush and actually paints and then straight back into the... Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think some of the things that I really liked about it matches up to the idea of tone and punctuation. Um, I loved how you did the beginning with the he was busy, man, was he busy. I think it set it up to just be this very scathingly humorous, look at someone who has a lot of self-importance. And I think just the delivery of those two lines really sets the tone and you delivered that perfectly. And then I also loved how you narrated the humour, that really sort of twisted, dry British humour crossed with typical dad jokes. They translated so well to audio. And I wasn't sure when I was reading it how they would necessarily translate if you're not like a stand-up comedian or whatever. Um, But I think my favourite was uh, Exit Pursued by Too Much to Bear, which I think is a joke that you'd love, but you'd never say in public. So you got to thrust it onto Palminter instead.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's the one that I was most, I was tempted to cut it from the story for the audio because I didn't want to say it. Like, I knew it was so bad that I was happy to write it and take the mickey of the concept on the page, but then to be the one to actually voice that, that horrific joke. Uh, was a different thing
0: I'm interested to know has the experience changed your feelings of audiobooks audiobook productions um yeah
1: I'm going to be very interested to uh, listen to other audiobooks now being more aware of what must have gone in Mm. to actually create that final polished product it's not just uh, the author sat in a booth reading from page one to page 300 <laughs> with, with no direction or performance notes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, they're they're full on performances and productions.
0: Great. It's really nice to hear that people don't think it's just a one take wonder. That would be magical <laughs> and a much cheaper way to uh, put audiobooks together, I'm sure. Um, so thank you for having this chat with me today Um, where can listeners find you if they want more
1: Uh, I guess because it's a pseudonym uh, I don't really exist Uh, but maybe in the future after this I will be compelled to set up some online accounts under MG Lockhart
0: or maybe uh, Parminter, Sol Parminter will set up a Twitter account and we can hear his very odd musings
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's a good idea
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much to M.G. Lockhart for sharing his story and process with us this week. Thank you to Teddy Merricks for the music and logos. And thank you, of course, to you for listening. Like I said at the top of this podcast, the next episode is the finale. I will present my own short story and we'll have a chat about the whole saga of writing and recording it. I'd honestly love it if you could take a second to show the podcast some love as it draws to a close. Each share, each review and each recommendation makes it so much more visible in the vast podcasting world. It would mean so much to me. This was In Short, the podcast from Blanket Fork Productions. See you all next time.